We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. I'd like to begin by getting very clear on what we're celebrating this morning, on the reason for the flowers and the beautiful music and the dresses that some of you are wearing and all of these things that we do on Easter. What is it that we're celebrating? The angel was the first to declare this reality of this day to the women who had come to the tomb looking for Jesus. The angel said, I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen from the dead. Today we celebrate that Jesus, the very same man who just a few days before had been betrayed by his friend, deserted by his companions, falsely tried and convicted, though he was innocent, who was mocked, beaten, and then lifted up on a Roman cross to suffer a humiliating, excruciating, dehumanizing death by suffocation and exposure. This man, hanging on that cross, was resurrected. This isn't the same as a magic trick, as centuries of post-Enlightenment philosophers and theologians have tried to argue. It's not a kind of David Copperfield masterful illusion. No, the very same man, Jesus, who was publicly and shamefully crucified and then laid in a tomb outside of Jerusalem, we'll say later in the service with the Apostles' Creed, who was crucified, died, and was buried to make no to leave no uh, lack of certainty about the fact of his death, who was buried in a tomb outside of Jerusalem. This man, as the angel says, is not here, for he is risen, as he said. You might say, well, that's impossible. I'd say, you're right, from our vantage point. Dead men don't rise. Just like more trivially, dead cars don't start. This is probably something most of us have more experience with. Certainly my family has more experience with that reality than I'd like to admit. There was a memorable morning of waking up after taking all of our kids camping and turning the key in our minivan and there was no response. We needed help. We needed a spark or a boost of battery from the outside. In our case that morning, thankfully, it came from a compassionate camper at a site not too far away from ours. But there is no spark and no boost from the outside for three-day-old death. Nothing. It actually is impossible from our vantage point. And yet, what we proclaim and what we celebrate, those of us who are Christians here this morning, what we rejoice in, what we have staked our lives upon, is that into this utterly hopeless situation, the God for whom nothing will be impossible injects his power. This is what the angel Gabriel said to Mary in Luke chapter 1 that nothing will be impossible with God. The power of the Most High will overshadow her. There is the spark from the outside, and in her womb, life will be conceived, life out of death. That same power is at work here on the resurrection morning. Fundamentally, what we're celebrating in the resurrection is the work of divine power and divine power for life, for abundant life. But this event doesn't just represent a, a micro level of life to death. 
just life, say, to Mary's empty womb or to Jesus' dead body in the tomb. As Jesus' earliest followers declared in their writings, which we refer to as the New Testament in the Bible, the resurrection of Jesus was, from their vantage point, the first act of the new creation that God had promised long ago. Sin and evil marred his created order and led to death, but God, the creator God, the one who made you and me, who made everything that we see, all the beauty and wonder that we see in his created order and all the beauty and wonder that we see in his image bearers sitting next to us right now, complex, mysterious, profound creatures that we are, the God who made all of these things long ago promised to renew and remake the world in Isaiah 11, Isaiah 65, among other places in the Old Testament. And he promised to do this not by discarding this present world, but rather by redeeming and renewing it. And Jesus' resurrection this morning is the first moment preceding all others right in the middle of history. And this was a surprise to everyone. The first moment of the new creation. And it assures the future recreation of our bodies and the world. Jesus is, as Paul says in Colossians 1, the firstborn from the dead, like that first bud to flower on a tree in springtime. The resurrection of Jesus is the sign of the beautiful, glorious, life-saturated world. It's the first sign that will follow this world that's coming after him, a world, as Revelation 21 declares at the end of the scriptures, in which every tear will be wiped away from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. We're celebrating this morning that life is on the move. Life is breaking out. Life conquers death. The God of the impossible whose power prevails is a God of life. And again, I know we come to this time and place from many, many different backgrounds, and perhaps many of us are uncertain, maybe a bit cloudy about the claims of Jesus or of the Christian faith. And if that describes you this morning, I hope I can at least get you clear about this one central claim, this one key point at the heart of our celebration. It's a claim that I hope that you will wrestle with in your life. That God, the God who is the creator, is a God of abundant life who deploys his power for life in the world. You've probably heard a lot of things about this God. You probably have a lot of opinions formed perhaps about who he is. But I want you to know that the resurrection of Jesus declares unambiguously, and this is the bedrock of the Christian faith. Without this, Paul says, we believed in vain. We are most to be pitied. This is our bedrock, and this event declares that God is a God of life whose power is deployed for abundant life. Perhaps that's just enough for you to contemplate this morning. But I want to continue and recognize as our text, we're in Matthew 27 and 28, it's printed in your bulletin. Our text for this morning actually shows us that God's power for life can either be opposed or embraced. It can be opposed or embraced. Matthew's gospel is unique in the sense that his account of the resurrection in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 28 is sandwiched by two accounts of opposition. And I want us to consider those accounts of opposition. The one before his resurrection takes place 
between the chief priests and Pharisees talking to the Roman governor, Pilate, and they're asking him to set a guard at the tomb. They had heard Jesus say while he was living, after three days, I will rise. Now that he's died on the cross, which from their perspective demonstrates for them unambiguously that Jesus was in fact an imposter, they wanted to leave no opportunity for another fraud, a second fraud, that would be his disciples coming by night, stealing the body from the tomb, and then telling everybody that Jesus rose from the dead. They wanted to avoid that second fraud, which would give some substance to the first fraud, which was Jesus' claim to be the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So what does Pilate say to them? He says, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. This wasn't a half-hearted measure. The Roman guard was a minimum of four soldiers, and it was the best security available to the chief priests and Pharisees. The Roman guard represented the superpower of the day, highly trained soldiers who would stand watch with the authority of the empire behind them. It'd be like dispatching a group of Navy SEALs or Army, Army Rangers or a well-trained SWAT team to guard or protect something in our day. They gave it their best shot, didn't they? But what is the power of man against the power of God? The God for whom nothing will be impossible. The weakness of God, Paul writes in his first letter to the Corinthians, is stronger than men. And we see that displayed here. The best security that they could come up with topples like a house of cards when confronted with the power of Almighty God. We read in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 28 that the earthquake strikes and the angel rolls back the stone and the sight of him was so glorious and marvelous that the guards trembled for fear of him and became like dead men. The point here couldn't be clearer from Matthew's perspective. Our strength is no match for God's power. Sarah's barren, postmenopausal womb conceives the son of the promise, Isaac. Pharaoh's army, having trapped God's people, drowns in the Red Sea. The walls of Jericho come crashing down by the blast of trumpets. Gideon and his band of 300 destroy the Midianites. And David, the lowly shepherd boy, slays the giant Goliath. What is Scripture, the Bible, if not one long record of the power of the God of the impossible and the call to place our trust in Him for forgiveness, for hope, for life, for resurrection. So go ahead, chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, Roman guards, politicians, philosophers, theologians, corporations. Make it as secure as you can. Your power is no match for God's. Having failed the direct opposition approach, 
The opposition, though, continues after the resurrection. The only security that they could muster was the security of deception, the security of the lie. They pay the guards to tell a lie. Verse 13, his disciples tell, them, tell the people this, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. This is known, in those who think about the veracity of the resurrection accounts, this is known as the conspiracy theory. The disciples knew this was a hoax. They conspired together to lead people astray. They stole the body at night. But one would have to ask, why would these disciples die and suffer as they did for such a hoax? It's a little hard to believe that they would go into the nations of the world and confront their idols and gods and face beatings, imprisonment, all for a lie, and that they would do that together without anyone defecting. There are other lies. The disciples invented the resurrection decades after Jesus' death. This one's clearly refuted by the early account of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians, about 20 years after the death of Christ. They experienced a hallucination. But Jesus appeared to more than 500, it was claimed. And people don't have group hallucinations, as those who study these things today would say. Or they were just so grief-stricken that they couldn't help themselves. They convinced themselves that Jesus was still alive, and they experienced his presence much like you or I might experience the presence of a loved one who's passed away. All of these theories, at one level, can sound convincing, especially if we're committed to a view of the world that concludes that dead people can't rise. But none of them, upon further examination, have strong explanatory power of the historical data. An empty tomb even many, if not the majority, of skeptical scholars grant this as a matter of historical record. The many different eyewitnesses who claimed to have an encounter with the risen Jesus, at least 15 of these accounts in the written record, including, as I mentioned, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, who most scholars believe is quoting a tradition that had been written within perhaps a year or so even of Jesus' death, claiming that 500, that Jesus had appeared to 500, most of whom were still alive. And perhaps most of all, and this one is powerfully articulated in what I would say is the best defense of the resurrection to date by N.T. Wright in his masterful work on the resurrection called The Resurrection and the Son of God. It is the historical fact that needs to be explained of the emergence of this new belief that one man had been resurrected in the middle of history. Let me explain. The Jews who affirmed resurrection all understood that resurrection was something that happened to everyone at the end of time. No one expected resurrection to happen to one man in the middle of time. But this is exactly what the Christians claimed had taken place and built their lives on and around. This was what featured in their pro proclamation to the world around them, that this man, Jesus, had been crucified on a Roman cross and had risen from the dead, and it appeared to them and to many others. One has to account for the emergence of this new belief, new, unexpected, unanticipated belief. And seemingly the only thing that can really account for this 
is that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead and appear to many. Addressing what I'm calling these lies, I'm not meaning to be disrespectful if some of you hold these, nor am I suggesting that I can argue any of you into a place of faith in Jesus. But I want you and everyone here who does believe to understand that the Christian faith and belief in the resurrection is not irrational. It is not wishful thinking. It is reasonable based upon the historical evidence. And the earliest disciples of Jesus, Paul especially, made this point over and over and over again. It is at least worthy of our deep consideration why did they lie? Why go forward with this deception after the chief priests knew what had taken place? The soldiers had told them. I'll give you what I think is a, a decent answer. It's self-preservation. They knew the truth about Jesus and his resurrection would upset the present social order in which they were on top, and therefore it would change their lives in a way that they did not want. The lie that the disciples stole the body protects the social order, so they think, from revolution. Give another 30 or 40 years and their social order comes toppling down. Plato actually develops the concept of the noble lie in chapter 3 of The Republic. The ruling class tells the masses the myth of the metals, that the god made the ruling class with a bit of gold, the helping class with a bit of silver, and farmers and craftsmen with a bit of iron and brass. The point of this myth, as told by the rulers, the ruling class, will help each social class to play its role with contentment and thus maintain social harmony. It may be useful. It may be even somewhat believable. But in the end, it is a lie, however nobly told. The purpose of the chief priests here is more sinister, but similar. Their lie is spread to preserve their place of power and of course, that lie that they're telling is built on a deeper lie, a lie that starts in the beginning, a lie that is told by the father of lies himself, the lie that says that being in control, being on top, being in power, running your own life brings you fulfillment and life. That's why they tell this other lie, but it doesn't. I want you to know that uh, at least according to the biblical word and according to Jesus, we have an enemy. And our enemy, the devil, will use lies of any kind to keep us from the truth of the God of life. It's been this way from the beginning of creation, according to the scriptures. Did God really say? The serpent said to Eve in the garden. And then he promised her flourishing, development, God-likeness, if she would just take of that forbidden fruit. But he knew he was telling her a lie. He knew that this lie would continue to keep him in the place of having the upper hand. And he continues his work today in the world, spreading falsehood and lies, obscuring and attacking the truth. The Oxford English Dictionary chose in 2016 for their word of the year, post-truth. They describe it in this way as an adjective relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. We all experience this. We live in this culture where the attack on truth is significant and great. 
any attack on truth will do for the enemy. He'll use philosophers, theologians, politicians, religious studies, faculties, scientists, bankers, barbers, pop stars, advertisers, and the voices in our head, and anything else that he can. And so many of these lies sound so convincing, don't they? So noble, but they're parasitic on the real truth. Share your truth. Believe in yourself. Be all that you can be, and so on. Other lies are more sinister, but so tempting to believe because they're so powerful in our heads. You're worthless. You're too far gone. You don't measure up. You're utterly and completely alone. God isn't there, and if he were there, he wouldn't care about you anyway. Clearly, look at your life. Or maybe they're saying, hey, it's just too late. You've lived too much of your life in a way that God could never forgive you. There are lies out there and lies in here, and they're all rooted in the father of lies, and they all deceive and divide and blind. Only the truth sets you free. And the truth is found in Jesus, who when he was living in his ministry said, I am the way and the truth and the life, the crucified and resurrected Lord, and in God's testimony about himself that we refer to as Christians as the scriptures, the Holy Bible, this book. Indeed, as I mentioned last week, man does not live by bread alone, nor by lies, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If you're unfamiliar with this word, I encourage you to explore it. I encourage you to read it. And if you're too embarrassed to do that in front of other people, just do it in your bedroom by yourself. Take it up and dig into it. And I trust that as you do so, you will find what so many have found. That here is truth. Liberating truth. Orienting truth. Robust truth rebuking truth, life-affirming truth, reliable truth. And in this word, which we have read today, there is this testimony to this great act of the power of God, that Jesus rose from the dead, and that because he has risen from the dead, one day he will return, and every lie will be exposed, and every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day every lie will be snuffed out. It will be exposed, and the truth will remain. He who is the truth will be exalted, and we will bow. Will we believe this? not just as a matter of cognitive assent to some list of truths on a page, but as an act of trust and embrace. All of this is contained in this event of this day. The resurrection is an invasion into the world of the power of God. How will we respond? So we've seen there's opposition, but there's also embrace in our text. And we see it in the response of these women who go to the tomb that first Easter morning. 
Instead of opposition, what we see in verse 9 of chapter 28 is they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. The worship here is a spontaneous acknowledgement that the resurrection authenticates Jesus' claims to be the Son of God, the Messiah, who is one with the Father. The resurrection demonstrates that the cross of Good Friday was not the defeat that it so obviously seemed to be to everybody who was watching, but was rather the great moment of victory in which sin, evil, and death, our great enemies, are once for all defeated, that we might be liberated and set free. The Christian is the one who trusts in Jesus, who, like these women, responds to the power of God and takes hold of his feet, bows before him and worships him, which is to say, Jesus, you are Lord. You are above my life. You are above my world. You are above all of my hopes, all of my fears, all of my ambitions, Jesus. You are above, and I fall before you, and I worship you as the living king. And to you, I yield. When we do this, what we call faith, repentance and faith, when we yield in this way, as these women did at his feet in encountering him for the first time after his resurrection, in that very moment, we are united with him. We are bonded with him by faith through the power of his Holy Spirit and brought to new life. The deadness of our own hearts and sin is by the grace of God made alive together with Christ. He is the spark the boost from the outside that changes us from within and gives us new life. And we celebrate that week after week, and above all weeks here on this week, on Easter Day, we celebrate the life that Jesus has come to bring. The New Testament understands resurrection metaphorically for Christians in this present age. That is, we are born again on the inside. Life does, in fact, come to us, but our bodies remain part of this present age, suffering and decay. Outwardly, we are wasting away, Paul says, but inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. And if you're a Christian here this morning, I want you to know that. This power that we celebrate this morning is a power that is at work in you. So there is a word for you in this text. And it's given twice to the women, first by the angel, then by the risen Christ. And it is a simple word, and, it, and this word is, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. There is so much for us to fear. So much for us to cower before. So much uncertainty. So much powerlessness. Just this past week, two people that I know quite well have received terrible diagnoses in their lives. Some of you sitting here have had that same experience in the not-distant past. Others of you are facing challenges and situations in your lives, and you have no idea how you're going to walk through them. If you are in Christ, then I want you to hear this word of exhortation. Do not be afraid. In this world you will have trouble, Jesus says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. What Paul prays for the church in Ephesians 1 is he prays that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. Why or for what purpose? So that they might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him, him from the dead. The power of the resurrection, the power that we're here to celebrate, the power of God for life, that power is at work in you if you're in Christ. And that means that if God is for you, who can be against you? 
And that means, as Paul continues in that section of Romans 8, that there is nothing in this world, nothing at all, not bankruptcy, not divorce, not cancer, not the pre premature death of one you deeply love, not the loss of a business or a job. Nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee of all of this. It is the first flower, the unmistakable sign that life prevails, that the power of God is unleashed for life. Life conquers death. Light prevails over darkness. Will we oppose it or embrace it? And so come to experience this power in the depth of our own hearts. There is nothing which we must fear, for the Lord is on our side. I'll close with these words from Chrysostom's Easter homily, an early church father. O death, where is your sting? As he quotes Paul. O hell, where is your victory? Christ is risen and you are thrown down. Christ is risen and the demons have fallen. Christ is risen and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen and life reigns in freedom. Stand with me as we pray. Lord Christ, we worship and praise you, the risen King, the resurrected Lord, the God of life incarnate in the man Jesus. We praise you and we celebrate this morning the fact of your victory over evil, sin, and death at the cross and the manifestation of that victory in your resurrection this day. For every heart here, Lord, I pray that you would help each one to wrestle with the reality of your power, a world invaded by you in the resurrection. And Lord, that you would break down opposition, whether it be opposition of might and fight or the opposition of deception and lies, and lead us, all of us, to embrace you, to yield to you, and to have life in your name, life forevermore, life abundant. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. We praise you. Amen.